Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mighty deeds that you have wrought through history and in our lives. And we recount them this morning as we consider the very price that was paid for us to gather, to assemble in this place, to share the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit together and to celebrate our eternal future secured in the blood of Jesus today. The mighty works of God evident in the incarnation and sending the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, into human flesh, into this earth to be the perfect law keeper and the perfect sacrifice who was slain for our sins and who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf who purchased for us salvation, who now intercedes for us before the throne of the Father, who is the once and for all sacrifice for all of the elect, whoever lives to make that intercession for us, who is succumbing every enemy of His under His feet, who has already overcome the enemy of sin in our lives, who is defeating the final enemy, death, even as we speak, bringing all things in subjection to Himself, building for Himself a kingdom from the building blocks of living stones and edifice that will glorify His holy name into eternity without end. Today we celebrate this future and we celebrate these things already accomplished. And now as we open up the Scriptures to read the amazing truths prophesied of these events and others, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate them to our hearts and that you would move them into action as we seek to be obedient to the faith among even the nations. May we be better equipped and prepared by the hearing of your word today to preach the gospel to those that you would bring into our path. Lord, I thank you for this time. We pray that you would receive all the glory for what is accomplished here this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great privilege to open the Scriptures, to worship together, and to appreciate each other's fellowship in Christ this day. Turn with me in your Scriptures, if you would, to Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is just seven short verses today, but we will not even scratch the surface of what's available to appreciate as we unpack them today in the course of this message, I trust. But I do hope that the Lord uses our time of study today to remind us how rich and deep His Scriptures are and to encourage us to dig even deeper still in our own studies. Today I would like to give you a title for the message, simply, God's Face Shining. God's Face Shining. This title comes from a prayer that was given to Aaron, the high priest, to pray over God's people. And we'll touch upon that prayer. Mark has already read it for our worship text today. So if you have your Bible open to Psalm 67, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God and let us read together. Follow me as I declare God's holy and infallible Word. This is Psalm 67 under the title, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. Verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, say law. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 67 answers the question, what does it look like and what changes? How do we realize the, the shining of God's face? This poetic picture, this figure of speech of may your face shine upon us. What does that mean exactly? You may have grown up, as I did, privileged to, be, uh, to appreciate the benefits later in life of a Christian home where my parents prayed the prayer of Aaron over me. 
I remember this often as mom and dad would tuck us in at night. They would pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. This is the prayer that seems to inspire Psalm 67. You see in verse 1, our author refers to a phrase that comes to us from Numbers chapter 6. You could turn there with me in a moment. We'll touch upon that verse. When the author of Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Where does this reference come from? It comes from the law. As God is setting up the parameters, the terms and conditions, the temple order or tabernacle order worship for His people, He commissions certain agents to represent Him. And one of these agencies is the priesthood, including the high priest Aaron. God gives special instructions for this office of priesthood, so special in fact that they are fulfilled in Christ, who is the ultimate high priest. But we see something of the work of Christ echoed in and prefigured in the work of Aaron, even in these instructions in Numbers 6, verse 22. Listen, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Verse 27, So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. The Lord instructs through these words in Numbers 6, verses 24 and through 26, instructs Moses to equip the high priest Aaron and his sons with words of blessing and benediction for his people. What is a benediction? A benediction is like a prayer of closure, closing, where an event or a worship service or something of that nature would be sealed um, with an important word, a word to remember as you leave and to kind of put a, a note of closure on the event. This is what a benediction is. And it is likely that these words, this prayer that was given to Aaron, was to serve as a benediction. When perhaps the people would meet to worship the Lord and pray at the tabernacle, perhaps those words would be heard over and over again in the hearing, in the ears of the children of Israel. They would hear at the close of an event where the Lord was glorified and He was lifted up and worshipped. They would hear, they would leave with the last words ringing in their memory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. There's another uh, piece of liturgy, if you will, in the Old Testament called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. There are these portions of Scripture in the Old Testament that are central. They're important texts. They serve as an anchor point and a foundation for the theology and for the events of redemption that are built on and around them. This appears to be one of those texts in Numbers 6.24 as we see it reappearing over and over again through the Scriptures and even in our text today in the Psalms. It serves, I would say, well as a benediction and blessing for His people both then and today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. And thirdly, the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Notice the Lord. This reference to Yahweh is repeated three times. This triune prayer and blessing would assure the blessings of God for those, uh, who, would, for those who follow Him and bear His name. This is the confident reassurance in the ears and the hearts of the people That if you are marked by covenant and set apart for relationship with the Lord, you have the assurance and the reassurance through this prayer that He will bless you, pour upon you His grace, His favor. The Psalms pick up on this theme as I mentioned, including in Psalm 67 today. This priestly benediction is also alluded to in Psalm 80. It's interesting to compare the two references. This theme of this holy and priestly benediction seems to be central to Psalm 80 as well. Notice it's repeated or a phrase from it three times. Psalm 80 verse 3, Restore us, O Lord, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Again in verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts, 
Let your face shine that we may be saved. And he repeats it again in verse 19. Restore us in closing of this psalm, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Again, a triune reference to the glory of God manifest in blessing those who are in relationship with Him. This psalm, Psalm 80, echoes this chorus of blessing associated with the nation of Israel. And in context, as you read the surrounding verses, it seems specifically to refer mostly to being called out of Egypt. God called Israel out of Egypt and planted them in the promised land. And in this context, we see that His face was therefore shining upon them. For instance, verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. That vine is messianic language or it's a redemptive language referring to poetic form, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel as a vine will be rooted in their land and will produce fruit for His glory as the Lord rescues them, redeems them, ransoms them out of slavery. He drove out the nations and planted them in this land. It continues in verse 8 to declare, You cleared the ground for it. You took, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, speaking of this vine, and the mighty cedars with its branches, and so on. As we see this language, it seems the context lends itself to the blessings of God that were evident when God called His people out of Egypt and planted them in the promised land. Having driven back the nations, the pagan enemies that would seek to thwart their attempts. And so, in, but as we compare this, Psalm 80, whereas it calls Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, we see a further application in our text today. In Psalm 67, there's actually a call to Egypt and in fact all nations to now come into the kingdom of God. So in this way, the shining face of God, God's face shining, is not just, it's not limited to just Israel's experience of redemption from Egypt, but now the application of the favor and the blessing of God upon His people is prophetically expanded to include a day when the Gentile nations can share a relationship with God such as Israel knows it at this time. He says, may your face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Psalm 67, 2. If Psalm 80 was a psalm for the people of Israel then, Psalm 67 is a psalm for the grafted in heirs of Abraham now. And we learned last week that you and I, if we are in Christ, are counted among them. Psalm 67 prophesies that you, as a believer, fellowshipping in Jesus Christ, will be seated in that chair this morning. The fact, because Psalm 67 is true, each one of us is here in this place, worshiping the one true God who manifests Himself in Jesus Christ today. That is why we are here, because the Word of God is true. These expectations of the blessings are not thankfully limited to Israel, but it's surprising, beautiful, and encouraging to see the shining face of God spill over the boundaries of ethnic Israel, welcoming in the Gentiles, even prophetically, as we read it today, to, in, to speak of a time and to encompass a time that we are living in its very fulfillment right now. What does the face of the Lord represent? If you look in Scripture and see the ideas that are attached to this figure of speech, the shining face of God, you'll find these truths connected to it. The face of the Lord refers to His delightful gifts of overflowing grace and glory. The face of the Lord represents His favor, His delightful gifts of overflowing grace and glory. The face of the Lord, His countenance, the turning of His a visage upon his people refers to his fatherly heart and protective power. The full scope of his redemptive blessings visited upon a people, purchased by sacrifice as his treasured possession. His fatherly heart and protective power 
His comforting arms, the full scope of His redemptive blessings promised by way of spiritual inheritance to His spiritual progeny is visited upon a people that are purchased by sacrifice as His treasured possession. The Lord has given me a special relationship with my two-year-old son. He's daddy's boy more so than any of the other kids ever have been. And when I come home from work, it is my face that he seeks, I mean quite literally. And when he hears the sound of sometimes just the latch on the door, it's the pitter-patter of little feet coming around the corner. And when he sees my face, which is lit up with the smile of a loving father, because I'm anticipating this reunion too, after eight long hours of separation, right? So he comes down the hall, he sees my face, and he throws back his little head and just laughs. He is just full of delight and joy to see his father. And there are many times where I pause when I'm enjoying that moment that God gives me as a gift, not because I deserve it, but because he is so gracious to me and that little relational connection with my son. And I think about the Lord's relationship to me. Do I throw back my head and laugh with the joyful freedom of my salvation when I behold his face in scripture? I ought to. Because that connection is even more powerful still. That relational connection of father to son that is forged in the blood of Christ, father to daughter, father to son that you and I enjoy with the Lord is one of overflowing blessing. This is the basic idea, but imagine it manifoldly uh, uh, increased, exponentially so. That's the idea of the Lord's face shining upon you. It's that joyful love and those long arms reaching forward, and it's the, uh, the sense of all that would stand between us melting away in this perfect embrace of joyful, gracious, mutual love and affection. This is the kind of relational connection that sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, adopted heirs, grafted in through the blood of Christ and His work, this is the kind of connection that we share with the Lord. And Psalm 67 celebrates this. It is amazing though because Psalm 67 does not describe this connection as limited to your individual experience or mine, but it foresees a day when whole nations, peoples, the ends of the earth are redeemed and get to share in this kind of experience. Let me give you a heading for three brief points this morning. The high priestly prayer of Numbers 6, 24 through 26, is ultimately answered as the world, number one, realizes God's way and saving power. So the priestly prayer of Aaron is ultimately, and fulfilled in Christ, is ultimately answered as the world realizes God's way and saving power. Secondly, this priestly prayer is answered as the world submits to God's government as peoples and nations. And thirdly, this priestly prayer is realized as the world harvests the increase of the earth. I submit to you that these blessings, these fulfillments, are three basic categories that we see in Psalm 67. Let us turn to the first one, the high priestly prayer fulfilled in Christ and ultimately answered as the whole world realizes God's way and saving power. May the Lord be gracious to us and bless us, we read in verse 1, and make His face to shine upon us. And then there's a connecting word, that. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you we see that the grace of God manifest in His face shining upon us is meant to accomplish something. Lord, shine upon us that Your way may be known on the earth. That is, the psalmist understood he was part of a people who had a mission far beyond their personal, individual, and even corporate experience between his fellow countrymen. He recognized a mission to demonstrate through the reality of their redeemed relationship to the Lord a message, a testimony to all peoples, to the nations, 
that they might appreciate and enjoy the connection, the reconciled connection of a sinner with the holy God that in this typological sacrificial system the Lord had provided at this time for the children of Israel. He desires that this city on a hill, as it were, in Mount Zion, geographically centered in Jerusalem, would shine out and so that the face of God in favor on His people would bless others so that they might know His ways, so that His saving power might be seen and appreciated and experienced among all nations. He prays and he proclaims that this prayer of God's shining face will be realized when God's way and saving power is known to the world. First of all, notice under this heading that, under this point, that it begins with grace. This psalm begins with grace. Reconciliation begins with grace. The relationship of the sinner to the grace of God begins with his unmer- or to God begins with his unmerited favor. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And then the rest of the psalm proceeds from there. Proceeds, I would say, like a river that grows and grows. When I was younger, maybe in grade school, I remember taking a field trip north to find the origin of the Mississippi, the headwaters of that great river. You know, we live in a section of the state, about mid-state here in Minnesota, where the river is wide, it's impressive, but it's not anywhere as impressive as they tell me it is down by its delta, Louisiana area, and so on. The river is so wide, it's so deep, the uh, volume of water is so impressive that depending on where you stood, I'm told that you wouldn't know it it wasn't a sea if, if it wasn't for the current. But if you followed this river upstream, you know, miles and miles and miles, you would eventually find its source. And I remember as a young guy just walking across the stones at the headwaters of the Mississippi, there was a point where that river could be crossed on foot, but that river grows. The source of that river demonstrates its power in its effect downstream. As all of the the progress continues south, This river gains such a manifestly powerful, gargantuan form. It irrigates miles and miles of agriculture. And it rushes forward to the sea. This is a picture to help us understand the power of grace. That moment when you confessed your sins in weeping remorse and repentance in faith believing that Christ had set you free was like a tiny beginning that had immense potential power. When an individual comes in contact with the Holy God, realizes his sin, and places faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that moment, the headwaters of grace, if you will, is powerful and profound. When God called out a people out of of Egypt, they were small, they were inconspicuous, they were weak, yes, they were stupid. They were actually conditioned socially and psychologically by years and years of slavery to be not impressive as a nation at all. There was no way this people had any hope of growing into an influential force in the region except for one thing. God had shined His face upon them. And through the weak and unlikely, He had tapped into their experience or He had planted a wellspring of grace in their experience that would grow and grow and grow. And so from the headwaters of His mercy, the manifest power of God would be demonstrated as Israel lived out the picture of redemption in their experience. And it became a reference point to understand the gospel and the relationship that we have with the Lord, just like they did in part and typologically then that we experience even now, thousands of years later. Remember this, it is a principle in the gospel that God starts with small beginnings as it were, but never underestimate the power of grace. The nature of man and the nature of God are both presupposed in the intro to this psalm. Grace understands that man does not deserve the favor, the shining face of God. But grace also understands that God has has decided, decreed to glorify Himself 
in pouring out on his people his lavish love in salvation. God is powerful, and he's so powerful and so gracious and so loving in his work that he has ordained in salvation that he can wash away the sin of man and the sacrifice indeed of himself. These ideas are assumed in the opening stanza of this song. Here in the beginning, as grace and its headwaters are celebrated, uh, we see that the undeserved favor of God is the key to the rest of the prophecy. The author is no Pharisee. He recognizes the equal dependence on grace that both Jew and Greek have. There is no powerful or possible way for him to be saved unless the grace of God had visited him. And so there is no possible way for the world to see the power of God and his saving grace among the nations unless he has mercy upon them. Yet from the headwaters of that source flows a mighty river that we partake in even today. The high priestly prayer of Moses of, uh, delivered to Aaron will ultimately answer as the world realizes God's lawful ways. We see in this first verse, or the second, that your way may be known on the earth. It says, make his, face, make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. What is the way of the Lord? Let me remind you of the three purposes of the law. This is a, a category, or category of understanding in theology that is underscored in Psalm 67 today. The way of the Lord, which leads to an understanding of His saving power, is an understanding of the use of the law, the first use of the law that we know in theology and sometimes referred to as mirror. What is God's purpose in the law? Well, one purpose of the law is to demonstrate His way of holiness and as He does to show us our sinfulness. When we see the ways of the Lord, and their perfection, and their demand for ultimate and perfect holiness, we recognize that we fall immeasurably short of that standard. As the law of the Lord, as the ways of the Lord are manifest to the world, they find themselves guilty before this revelation. Thou shalt not murder, the evangelist says as he stands outside the abortion clinic in the pampered west where we on the altar of convenience yet commit human sacrifice. And this way of the Lord, thou shalt not murder, convicts those whom the Holy Spirit is pleased to use the word of God, and they repent of their sin, and they trust in the Lord. This is the way of the Lord meeting the world, and it is an answer to the prayer that God's face would shine upon man when his righteousness is proclaimed to a wicked people. The lawful way of the Lord is proclaimed in the gospel by showing man his sin, by holding up the mirror of God's perfection, and, see, and we see in that reflection the sinfulness and the stains of our heart that is inclined to lust, our heart that is inclined to a jealousy, to despair, to lack of faith, and to murder, and all of the other sins that corrupt our soul. But as the Lord makes His way known to the peoples, they then can see their need for His saving power. And that's the third category under realizing God's way and saving grace. His grace proclaims His lawful way. There's a shift in the author's tone as, as he's declaring this. He moves from speaking of God in the third person to the second reminding us of the personal essence of God, it says that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And so after the way of the Lord is made known, then we see salvation, the realization of salvation possible for the lost. The saving power of the Lord should be exalted among the nations through those who have received the, who have experienced the shining face of God on our lives. In this way, the author of Psalm 67 anticipates Acts chapter 10. What is that a reference? That's when Peter receives a dream of unclean animals down, uh, lower down on a sheet. 
and he recognizes them as the interpretation comes as referring to the Gentiles. And a door is open to the Gentiles and the gospel goes forth. The lawful ways of God are preached and salvation in Christ alone is then heralded to all nations beginning at this, the threshold of the Great Commission. Which also reminds us of Matthew 28, which we will study in short order in our Matthew series. In Matthew 28, Jesus, the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice and high priest, commissions his disciples to take the gospel that they have now heard and realized to the nations. You remember the scriptures. Matthew 28, 16, as the 11 disciples uh, went to Galilee to the mountain, they worshiped the Lord. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What would that be? The lawful ways of the Lord. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. This commission to send his disciples to all nations was a fulfillment in part of Psalm 67, when the psalmist cries out in prophetic worship, as you shine your face on us, may it have the effect of your way being made known on the earth and your saving power to all nations. The priestly prayer that Aaron prayed in benediction, presumably over and over again over the people, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Contained in that nutshell of prophetic reality, the blessing that one day more and more people would realize the truth, the beauty, and the comfort of that prayer as the gospel would go forth proclaiming the righteousness of the Lord and the only way to be conformed to His righteousness through trusting in the blood of Christ to wash away your sins and to impute His righteousness to your account. And thus, through the Great Commission, the saving power would begin to welcome in people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Second point this morning, the high priestly prayer is of number six is ultimately answered as the world submits to God's government as peoples and nations. We go on in Psalm 67 to read these words in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. I wonder how many people joyfully celebrate and worship as they are inspired by the judgments of God. The church has grown timid of declaring the judgments of God in this generation. We must be careful. If we are timid of declaring the judgments of God, it's not far from not even declare or, or showing ourselves not to be the church anymore in the first place. And I suspect that is the case in many sectors. The self-professing church does not speak to the whole council. It does not proclaim the whole council of God. And if we do not proclaim His judgments, His righteousness, the fact that there is a reckoning ultimately at the end of history and for each person an accounting will be... Uh, will, will be made for every thought, every deed. And if, your, and if your life is not hid in Christ, and if the penalty for your sins is not covered by the blood of Jesus, a substitute sacrifice, then the judgments of God will prove His glory in sending that soul to hell. The judgments of God are powerful. They are real. They are frightening in a sense, they are terrifying in a sense, but they are also worthy subjects of praise. As the world submits to God's government, peoples and nations, then they will realize the face of God shining upon them. There is no, re there is no right to feel and to sense the favor of the Lord, His presence and His blessing without also realizing 
His power manifest in His judgments. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. There is an international worship service that Psalm 67 portends that it, pre, that it uh, prophesies of. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The uniqueness of joyful song and worshipful expressions of praise is evident in other sections of the Old Testament. And for instance, in Exodus 15, 20 through 21, the Lord delivers His people through the waters of the Red Sea. They collapse in judgment on His enemies. And then it's the prophetess Miriam, the sister of Aaron, begins to sing and praise the Lord. You know, praising Him that the horse and rider have been thrown into the sea. That is God who has triumphed over His enemies in saving His people. This is the joyful song of worship that celebrates both God's deliverance and His judgments that springs forth from His people at this time, celebrating the triumphs of the Lord. There is no other true expression of triumphant joy outside of what Scripture prescribes it to be. And the author of Psalm 67 foresees a time when not just his people, the Israelites, and songs led by Miriam celebrating the uh, destruction of his enemies, it celebrates a time, Psalm 67 does, when others will join in praise as well. And we have done so, brothers and sisters, even this morning. Psalm 67 envisions a day when the whole world will offer to the Lord in an international worship service praise to His name for His mighty deeds. This impulse uh, to worship the Lord in joyful, overflowing praise and happiness for what He has done is absolutely unique to the Christian religion and is unique to the religion of the Scriptures of the Bible. If you look through the ancient times and the constructs and concepts of gods and worship services, one thing you will never really see in fullness is songs of joy and overflowing praise for a God who judges. Why is this the case? Because there is no other way, there is no other avenue of salvation that can celebrate His glory in these things because there is not, there is no assurance in any other of man's attempts to write himself before the Lord of his salvation in the one perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who is represented in the sacrifices of old. But when these two come together, the judgments of God and his salvation, a spontaneous overflowing effect of that realization is a worship service that praises the Lord for what he has done. What are the judgments of the Lord? Well, this brings up the second use of the law. The second use of the law is to curb evil. The, the law itself has a civil use. We see it all through Scripture to restrain the course of evil through righteous civil judgments or laws. What are the instruments and means of God's way? What are His means and, and His methods of bringing His judgments and His guidance and His way to the attention of the peoples? Well, it is His law. It is His Word that is recorded. Take joy in these things, saints. Understand their role. So far, we've covered two uses of the law. The law is glorious and powerful and indispensable because it is a mirror that shows us our sin. It leads us to a Savior. We recognize our need for Him in light of the perfection that God's standard demands. Secondly, His law is the glue that keeps society together. We would not have driven here on roads where people generally followed uh, the basic rules of traffic. We would not be alive today without our, our houses left unlocked, without them being overrun with villains and thieves, if it had not been for the second use of the law. Our nation enjoys, even to some degree, the face of the Lord shining upon us in the second use of the law. But we must realize the source and authority of where these things come from or we will soon lose them. Psalm 119.105, the uh, author actually through the entire psalm exalts the Lord and His virtues as he contemplates the law of God. 
the statutes of the Lord, his, uh, the things that he has written and established that are unshakable, immovable. They are the standard, the benchmark, the foundation for justice. And this is the power of God evident, the immeasurable value even to the individual and to the society. And as the Lord shines upon a people, they realize the value of his judgments. He judges the people with equity. All are held to the same standard. He reveals his truths in the law. He does so in the established law, the moral law, like we read in the Ten Commandments. And he does so by application in individual examples through the case law in the Old Testament. These are concepts that are understood and celebrated by the author of the Psalms. When nations submit to God's government, whole people groups place themselves under the authority of the Lord, and He as their ruling king and judge, they will become an answer to, his pra- to the prayer of Aaron that His face would shine upon us and give us peace. This is a necessary element. I listened to an interview this week And it was an interesting one indeed. It was a living relative of ancient peoples in New Zealand. And he was a professor at a university there in New Zealand. And he spoke of his people and his association with these ancient tribes in the first person. You know, recognizing his identity with them. We, he says, as a people and I... As an, an example of those people, you know, we lived a certain way. And they, they talked about a moment of first contact. What was first contact? Well, in sociological categories, it was when the West met the, uh, this estranged, you know, uh, uncivilized people. And it happened through economic enterprise, colonization, and through missionaries and so on. And this is a mixed story in history. But he recognized one thing that I thought was profound. He said, when we were discovered by Western peoples, missionaries, and so on, we were eating each other. That's literally true. They were a cannibalistic tribe. He said, what better way or what more uh, you know, emphatic way to show your domination in war than by eating the, the uh, other tribe and so on. So he, and he said, and it was good that these practices stopped. He recognized that as the message of the gospel came in, that for the first time this tribe realized what forgiveness was. He recognized the power to preserve his society of sacrificial love. Well, tribes cannot continue to murder and eat one another and last very long. The shining face of God's preservation depends on honoring his law, to love your neighbor out of love for him. The law of the Lord comes in to rescue society. It's interesting now, in this academic environment that this guy now serves, he is one of the few who recognizes the value of this so-called Western, I would say ultimately it's Christian worldview influence. There are others who say, oh, it tainted us. We were a pure, culturally pure people, but then we were invaded by Westerners with their ideas and their religious notions. Uh, We got to get back to preserve ours. And with, with a, a, a sort of an ominous tone in his voice, this professor says, uh, there may be some value to that, but uh, hopefully we don't start eating each other again. And it reminded me of the power of the law of God to come in and to bring correction, rebuke, discipline, instruction, and foundations that we might, receive, that we might realize the shining face of the Lord upon our society. We can praise the Lord for these things. We are alive today because God, in His grace and providence, has given us categories of safety that we wouldn't otherwise have if there wasn't some bit of law at least remaining in our land that is based upon His truths, His precepts, and His principles. Let us pray that they remain. Let us pray that we grow. Let us pray that we don't act like those I just described, seeking to divorce ourselves from Christian influence and go back to eating each other again. The high priestly prayer of Aaron is realized as nations submit to God's government, peoples as well, whole groups of people, not only to uh, his judgments, but also to his guidance. And this reminds us of the third use of the law. We mentioned that the law is a mirror to show us our sin. We also Reference the law as a curb, if you will, to restrain the course of evil, 
to provide the framework for a just society. Third use of the law is to show us how to worship, to walk in a manner worthy of our call. This is the guidance or the guide aspect of the law. Let the nations praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. And as we search the scriptures for ways to change into the image of Jesus Christ, we see in what God has laid out and declared a vision for our sanctification, for the changing life of the believer to reflect more and more what the scriptures laid out, lay out in his law and his dictates as godliness, as righteousness. And so we see in the word of God, the, there the standard. And when we submit to it as a people and as a nation indeed and pray that our nation does, we see the answers to the prophets or we see the fulfillment to prophecies in Psalm 67 coming true among peoples and nations. Let us be an example in this regard. Remember the framework of this psalm. Make your face to shine upon us, a more personal term, that your way be, may be known upon the earth. As we live in light of biblical truth, let us make it our prayer that that would be evidenced in our nation, that the saving power of God would be proclaimed through the changing lives of His people. And as the peoples praise Him, that the nations would join in glad song when they realize the purity, the power, the glories of the Lord's judgments that, uh, that uh, uh, deals with the people in equity and guides the nations upon the earth. Thirdly and finally this morning, the high priestly prayer of number six is ultimately answered as the whole world harvests the increase of the earth. Notice the blessings that are promised as this changing situation continues to unfold in the psalm, verse 5, again he says in chorus form, Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then verse 6, The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There are covenant terms that are laid out in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. And I'll just read to you a couple of the promises connected to the godliness of the people that we read of in Leviticus 26. Notice here in verses 3 through 13 what Moses declares. He says, if you walk in my statutes, God is speaking here through his servant. We see this in verse 1 when he says, I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And notice these blessed, blessed conditions if you, or uh, promises. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, verse 3, then verse 4, I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely." I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. He continues on and on to declare the blessings of godliness that visit a people when they live uprightly and according to the terms of his covenant. Of course, there are curses as well. We are familiar with these, are we not, in our own land? I find it such an irony that, you know, recently I read a news story that an aircraft carrier was commissioned to add to our fleet. Now we have like 12. And I don't know, the closest nation to rival us maybe has two. And these are like floating cities. 4,000 uh, uh, seamen are on this nuclear-powered carrier at any given time with hundreds of aircraft protecting you and I over this globe. They can be deployed at all these different locations of unrest on the earth. And in a moment's notice, we can calm any threat by the push of a nuclear button. And yet we fear in this land. What does this tell us? That chariots and horses are not trustworthy sources of security. Why is it the bigger our military grows and the more influence we command internationally, the more the news freaks us out as we see a terrorist event over here 
or some incident over there, or we hear of those immigrating or uh, illegally across our borders, potentially setting up terror cells in our state, in our nation, in our locale. Why is it that we are so plagued with fear in this nation? It's not because our military isn't big enough. It's because we, have, we are out of favor with the Lord. It's because as a people, we've abandoned His law and His ways. It's because there is room and repentance for our hearts to be connected to the only true source of security and safety, which is in relationship with Him, trusting in, in Him. When we do this, there is an increase that is yielded. Even the land springs forth with new life as people live in right relationship with the Lord. The cultivation of the soil and the return, the fruits of our labor, increase proportionally to the godliness of a nation. I submit to you that this is a principle that yet remains today. And it is evidence of the shining face of the Lord when these are the realities in a nation that repents and places their faith and trust in Him. There yet remains a cultural mandate for us as believers. Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.15, Genesis 9.7. Go forth, fruitfully multiply, subdue the earth, bring it into submission with God's design and intent. When we live in such a way so that our efforts are concentrated in bringing God's world into submission with His created order, there is great blessing that overflows from these activities. From the farmer all the way through society to whatever area of industry that you are called. The agricultural analogies of such things are common in Scripture, and they are most basic. The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear Him. The harvests of the earth increase as godliness goes forth. It is to the blessing and benefit of the people to receive the gospel. And the gospel works its way through the life and lifestyle and the subsequent blessing of a nation far beyond just our personal eternal security. It goes even to the fruits of our labor, even to the safety of our borders, even to the fruitfulness of our soil, right down to the basics the Lord has ordained in the sufficiency of His Scripture, the ways and means for a people to prosper and thrive. All these things are connected to the purposes and plan of the Lord in His salvation. This is the message of Psalm 67. The Lord is a jealous God, and He is Lord of all the universe. And He refused to suffer one segment of society, one aspect of culture, one people group that would uh, exist in a neutral realm as though He were not in charge. There is no such area, no such aspect, no such culture, and no such people group. Every aspect of life and every culture and people that have ever lived will all answer to the same God and Father and Lord of all. He is the one who has dictated sovereignly, sufficiently, and uniquely the terms and conditions of blessing and benefit in all areas of life. And as we walk with Him and manifest more and more of this fruit, we realize the greater power of the gospel, do we not? We see that from the wellspring, the fountainhead, the headwaters of grace, flows a mighty river, a river that gathers up into it by the proclamation of the gospel people from all over the world. We see this river bringing justice to the peoples, righting wrongs and setting things aright, bringing repentance to hearts and providing a guide for godliness to all who are willing to hear. We see the earth yielding its increase as God restores and reclaims aspect of our calling in accordance with His created intent as we seek to apply the Word of God each day as we live out our lives in the way that He has called us uh, to be faithful to Him, even in our day-to-day -day jobs. As these things take place and unfold, we see these words in number six coming true. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. 
and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Brothers and sisters, I had to repent as I was studying for this message this week. Why? Because too often my faith is restricted to something small and I get discouraged when I see a world in chaos and it makes me want to consolidate my efforts closer and closer and closer to my individual life. This is not the vision of Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is not a psalm of retreat and, uh, and, and stepping back into uh, a smaller and smaller domain of dominion. It's quite the opposite. Psalm 67 proclaims that the advancing power of the gospel will take more and more ground. We suffer in many ways in our, uh, in, in our life and experience, even politically. We suffer in many ways with the consequences of sin in our culture today. And a lot of the impulses are to retreat and to protect and to go back in and to have more and more fear and more and more isolation be the tendency among our people or among us as a people today. Just know that we are called to be different, unique, peculiar, set apart. A people called out, set apart from the world system unto the praise of the great name of Jesus Christ as citizens to a kingdom that is different from this world. We can be called forth as missionaries to bring the only true answer to solve global terrorism into the war-torn areas of the Muslim Middle East. As hearts are changed, swords will be laid down. As people repent before the Lord Jesus Christ, their lives will be transformed and they will begin to live in accordance with His holy will. This is the message, this is the thrust, this is the direction, the theme of Psalm 67. Let us stir ourselves up in faith to believe it is so. Consider, that is, to say the universal reach of Psalm 67 and its demands and its prophetic course. It's going forward to the nations. The glory of God will not be stopped. It will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. It is commonly assumed that we should naturally expect the world to act like pagans. Oh, we just come to expect that the world would continue in their sinful ways as though this reality of our experience is inevitable. But uh, Psalm 67 tells us something different. The reality of our rebellious state is true enough, but it is profoundly opposed to the created order and God's prescriptive purposes for man, not to mention the ultimate purposes of redemption. We should not be comfortable surrounded by the world's reveling or moldering in rebellious oblivion. We should not be comfortable with this. We should work to push back the darkness as we shine as light. We should work to preserve this nation to advance the kingdom as we sprinkle its salt. It is horrifically unnatural for peoples and nations to exist indifferent to the glories of their Creator. And as we have received light and knowledge, the revelation through the gospel of the way things truly are, let us pray that it shines through us to others. Let me close with a quote. William Binney, a Scotsman, I believe from the uh, 19th century, commented on Psalm 67 by saying the following, The people of God long to see all the nations participating in their privileges, visited with God's salvation and gladdened with the gladness of His nation. They long to hear all the nationalities giving thanks to the Lord and hallowing His name, to see the face of the whole earth which sin has darkened so long, smiling with the brightness of a second Eden. They long, the people of God, to hear the nationalities giving thanks to the Lord and hallowing His name, to see the face of the whole earth which sin has darkened so long, smiling with the brightness of of a second eating. Let us pray that the Lord would conform our affections to Psalm 67. O Heavenly Father, we thank you that your purposes and plans cannot be stopped, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your true church, and that all of history and all peoples will one day bow before your Lordship. And we thank you that you have subjected us already through redemption to confess you as our Savior and Lord. I pray now that through the preaching of your scripture, you would build our faith, 
to realize the power of the gospel. A proclamation in faith without wavering is enough to bring a city to its knees. A reluctant prophet, Jonah, was commissioned to Nineveh, and from king to cattle they wore sackcloth and ashes in a matter of weeks as the gospel was preached, transforming an entire pagan society. This can happen again because the gospel is just that powerful. We can trust your purposes in the meantime, but let us never lag in faith as we struggle, Lord Jesus, in a day and age where the enemy thinks he has the upper hand. We know differently from your scripture Let us live in faith that you will and have and are overcoming. And each day, Lord, marks another moment where you are subjecting all your enemies under your feet. One by one, Lord Jesus, this is the inevitable course of history. We praise and thank you for it. And finally, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless us and keep us, that you would make your face shine upon us, and that you would give us, your people, peace in order to proclaim your name to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.